Hey, OB-Giners. Hope you're having a great week. This week, Kenan and I got to talk with Dr. Ebony Carter, who is amazing. <laughs> I think you will really love this podcast. We spend a little bit of time talking about how COVID's changed work and home life for her, uh, but she then delves into her personal perspective on career choice and how she came to be doing what she's doing with such a great purpose of enhancing public health for the most vulnerable around us, which unfortunately includes many of our women patients. She talks about her greatest hero being her mom, and I was floored by this whole interview. I just love Dr. Carter, and I'm so glad to call her a colleague and friend. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast and a little bit of our discussion. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Yeah, buddy. You're back. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Oh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We are so happy to have you as a guest. This is the one. Thank you, you for having yeah. me. Oh, I don't, know where, I don't know where to start, but how, how have you been? Catch us up. Um, how's the DCR? How are you? How's your family? Um. So... I'd say life is good overall. I am uh, slowly adjusting to the new normal. I'll start with fam first. So (laughs) my kindergartner like um, loves school in general, but absolutely hates Zoom school. Um, She's (laughs) she's still adjusting to that. Luckily, she's very studious and you know is diligent about her lessons. Tries to get everything done by lunchtime. My four year old is less studious and could care less about any of her assignments. So I'm like, thank God she's like not in school and it doesn't really count yet. Right. Yeah. So are you um, are you able to help them with the assignment? Are you like able to be at home for for the, some of that? Are so you like to be I a am, teacher for? <laughs> I'm going into the um, clinic or hospital about three days per week, so I'm home okay. for two days, and then I am so incredibly blessed because since I have a one year old, so I have a nanny who stays with her, and so um, I I don't even know how how everyone is doing it because she has basically. Um, I joke that she's my wife. Um, she <laughs> <Her nanny. laughs> she uh, keeps my husband and I together beautifully and the kids. So thank God mm. for that. Yeah, man. It's great. And she's been able to stay with you through this time. Yes. She lives with you. Yes. Okay. She's like a family extent. I mean, she doesn't live with us, but she's like a family oh. extension. So yes. Okay. I see. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Shout out to all the teachers out there who teach kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Um and everything above and beyond, like, I couldn't imagine, um, it, like, teaching teaching our kindergartner and our, like, PK is an adventure. Yep, I have a whole new level of respect. And, and the other thing is, I've been impressed at how teachers adapted, because, you know, like, with no notice, they had to go to teaching online. And so, that the activities they have for doing for kindergarten are actually pretty exciting. Like even her gym teacher has a little thing on the app where a silly song will come on and she runs all over the house and then it says stop. And then you start, (laughs) right. I mean, I feel like they've, they've been as creative as they could during the worst of times. Yeah. So, so yeah, they're doing great um, to work. Um, The DCR, the division of clinical research really Mm. is, um, my heart. I love the, the DCR because I feel like for all of us who do research, it's really like the heart and soul of our department. Um, it has been, you know, somewhat devastating because all research came to a halt with COVID. And so a significant portion of our staff um, is now furloughed um, and a few were laid off. So that has been um, pretty devastating. So we are, you know, looking forward to the day when we're able to um, bring everybody back in and continue the great work that we were doing. But um, that's the DCR. And we still have a core of folks who are keeping the things going that we can do during these times, so. Nice. Yeah, super hard, always super hard decisions that have had to be made regarding research. Can you tell us a little bit about your own personal research and what you're studying right now and what what have you had to change based on COVID? Sure. my research focuses on um, alternative ways to provide prenatal care. And so I focus mainly on group prenatal care. And so I have um, 
two randomized trials of group care, one for women who have gestational or type 2 diabetes who either are randomized to get regular care or group care. And then I have another trial of women who are at high risk of getting diabetes. And that trial is trying to prevent it through a group care intervention that starts in the first trimester and really focuses on a lifestyle and what does it mean to have a healthy mom and a, a healthy baby. And so, you know, above and beyond research, all group care has been halted uh, in the age of, of COVID. So I feel like from a research perspective, I'm like, oh my gosh, like how am I going to salvage these trials? Um, so I've been, we're still collecting surveys and those kinds of things remotely for the women who are in the trials, but I've been trying to think creatively about um, how to go forward and not lose all of the hard work that we have put into these trials and the sacrifices of the women who have gone through the trials with us. And so I've started thinking about, are there virtual platforms that we can use for group care? Um, I, I, my, my one concern with that is that I think that group care works so well because there's this X factor that happens when you put pregnant women together in a room who are going through similar experiences and that richness that's shared between them. And I think you lose that in Zoom. Like I find Zoom to be exhausting. Yeah. You can't even like get up and go to the bathroom <laughs> in between meetings without being late. Um, and, right? and I think my husband and I were talking about it. I think that you lose social cues. Like when you're in a room with people, mm -hmm. you catch all of these things just naturally. And I think with Zoom, you have to be super aware and vigilant to like catch inflections and subtleties and nuances and it's exhausting. And so I don't want to bring that into this intervention that's supposed to be supportive. So I challenged my research team for us to think a little bit outside of the box. And there are some benefits to, to telemedicine. So for example, our patients have lots of transportation issues or they can't miss work. And so I, I did a telemedicine visit with a patient who worked in a factory in Southern Illinois last week. And so when we, when I logged in for Zoom, she was like, give me just a second. And she was walking outside of the building to get in her car and have her prenatal care. So I think that there's some perks of the new way yeah. of doing things. So I'm trying to figure out ways to blend the best of the old and the best of this new that we would have never thought of if we hadn't been forced to be creative. So I don't have any solutions yet, but that's kind of like the <laughs> thought process that I'm going through to figure out, you know, how we can move forward even in these times. Have any of your patients had difficulty accessing? I mean, everyone's most everyone these days has a smartphone capable of, you know, an app for Zoom, but have you run into anybody who that platform is just not accessible? Um, so I'd say yes and no. We're, we're really only using Zoom at full capacity in the, I mean, for my patients in the maternal fetal medicine clinic. And so we have done some phone visits, but I'd say by and large, we're doing um, Zoom visits. In the resident clinic, most of those visits have been um, over the telephone just because we don't have the, the Zoom capacity up and running yet. So I'm sure that will be an issue. And for uh, group care in particular, as we think about, could we get women together on a virtual platform? I find that in the resident clinic, most patients have smartphones, but the service comes in and out, right? Like yes. you, you have it for a couple of weeks yeah. and then we can't find the person. And so I think that if we were going to rely on that platform for this kind of intervention, we would need to make sure that we were either providing the phone service or providing the smartphone, or it, it would definitely take some more um, support on our end to make it work. You mentioned the X factor being just like being physically around each other. Is Do you think, and, and I agree with you completely. I mean, many times people on Zoom, you don't pick up the cues. Half the people don't have their video on. You don't know who's talking at any given moment when you would if you were sitting in the room. Do you, is, do you think there is a path and do you think, do you have a sense of whether patients will still accept, like, accept it, even though maybe there's some concern that you might not get the benefit of it? Will patients still demand to do it that way? Or are they asking to do it that way, I guess? You know, I haven't had, I haven't had a we lot know. of patients ask for it, but I think patients aren't totally aware of it. It will be interesting as, I mean, we've been doing it in the MFM clinic now for three or four weeks. So we're just coming up on the time where people would have a potential second visit. And so sure. I actually haven't heard feedback from patients in terms of whether it's a modality that they like or not. Um, interestingly, for from a group standpoint, I find that even for group visits in person, the greatest hurdle is getting people to come to the very first group visit. 
because people mm-hmm. commonly say like, I don't want people in my business like that. Or yeah. I mean, people, Oh, I have to go to work. I have people have all kinds of reasons why they can't do it. I'm, I don't want to sit someplace for two weeks for my pre or for two hours for my prenatal care. When the reality is you're going to be there for two hours anyway. Do you want to spend it like having snacks and talking and like, you know, having the camaraderie of other patients or do you want to spend it sitting in the waiting room? Cause those visits are often long and it's like a lot of just waiting around for <laughs> yeah. stuff. Um, right. But what I have found is for group visits with, with research, you usually want to have patients who are dependable and are going to, to come as directed. I do the opposite for these studies. I say, you know, we have this intervention. We're not sure if it works or not, but we'd love for you to come and try it and just come once. And if you absolutely hate it, you never have to come again. Because right. I know that once they come, chances are they're going to really like it and they will keep coming back. Even people who are like, I have to leave an hour early because I have to be at work. They don't leave an hour early. They stay for the whole group because it's fun. Um, so yeah, I feel have like the hurdle had, is just getting people to try it. Have you ever had members of the group reach out to people who came and they're like, yeah, I think this patient really needs to be part of this. I'll reach out to that patient. Like, can that... Is that allowed? Yeah, it's 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 allowed. It's that- encouraged. I remember the first group that I ever did for diabetes. Um, they enjoyed it so much that they were telling the sonographers. I feel like the patients who were in the group were like the best advertisement that we had this new cool thing that we were doing because <laughs> um, they were telling everyone. That's nice. So they can they can kind of champion it and be your spokesperson. Yeah, recruitment. They can recruit as well. Right. Kind of. That's pretty good. Yeah. So do you, so you think after all this, it's going to be a balance. I heard you kind of say, you think there's going to be a balance of kind of virtual visits in prenatal care. And is that kind of what you, what, what you predict will be the future of prenatal care as it relates to a post COVID quote unquote world? Well, I think, um, I think the interesting thing is there was some compelling data from the eighties when there was a huge push to say adequate prenatal care is important for pregnancy outcomes, which hasn't been fully proven, to be honest. And so there were a few studies where they did reduce prenatal care schedules in the late 80s, early 90s, and essentially found that for low-risk women, a reduced prenatal visit schedule did not alter outcomes at all. And so kind of advocated, we don't really have to do 10 to 12 prenatal visits during a pregnancy. But it didn't catch on because I feel like the, the popular notion at the time was that prenatal care is this really good thing that we should be stressing. And When I was a fellow, I did um, two kind of sister studies. The first one was looking at low-risk pregnant women and looking at those who were like in the top quartile of prenatal care utilization versus those in the bottom quartile. Um, And I call those top quartile folks probably like the worried well, the folks who came all the time, but they were actually fine. And I found that in that top quartile, we were more likely to do things to them. Like they were more likely to get induced and have a C-section and all of these interventions, but their outcomes actually were not any different than those who were in the lowest quartile of utilization. And I did the same study for women with diabetes, where if you're in the top quartile of utilization, you probably have worse disease. Like people who don't have good blood sugar control, we have them come every week because we're trying to get them under good control. So it was kind of biased towards those people being the sickest. And guess what? Mm -hmm. They actually had better outcomes than those who were in the lower utilization groups. And so my, my mm-hmm. working hypothesis on this is that if you're sick, you need more prenatal care. Like you, you need more and a more intensive level of care. But if you're well, we don't really need to see you that much because we might just do more stuff to you. Like stay away. Um, yeah. And so yeah. if, applying that to the COVID epidemic, I think it's going to be turned on its head. On one hand, you know, people who used to get ultrasounds for growth every three weeks, now we're pushing them out to every four to six weeks trying to minimize their COVID exposure or people who would have been seen for prenatal visits every two weeks, maybe now we're doing it every two to four. And so in the absence of COVID, I think that that's actually perfectly fine. And for the for most patients, their, their outcomes would not be different. I think that in COVID, I think mm-hmm. I, I can't do that study and it's not going to be valid because people are stressed. I think that this yeah. is kind of like a textbook example of trauma. And trauma and stress in general are not good for anyone. Um, so I, I think that my study findings probably would not be valid in the in the era of COVID. But it will be interesting to see how this changes our practice patterns going forward. 
Um, and I think that I'm thinking long-term about this because this isn't going anywhere soon. I think people are going to be concerned about coming to the hospital about exposure easily mm -hmm. for the next 12 to 18 months. And so we'll have to adapt. Yeah, I think that population that you described as the worried well is fascinating because they're also the ones worrying about not being able to come in and you know, trying to convince them over a Zoom visit that they don't need a pelvic exam, for example, is very mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, and I think that's, I don't know, but, but I think they, they will be okay as long as we can get over that psychological urge to come in and, and be examined. But there are other people that are falling through the cracks, like people who are not getting their cancer diagnosed in my world. You know, I think I, I, that it's going to be a bad thing. I don't know how. I feel like that's the most terrifying it. of all are, are all of the things that early detection would have made a difference for that we are going to be woefully behind mm -hmm. in. Um, I think that for pregnancy, the main things that we need to know in person are, is there a fetal heartbeat? And is your blood pressure okay? Those are like the two big surveillance things that we do. And so luckily, and it's, um, we have uh, a generous donor who has uh, donated blood pressure cuffs. Um, and so I think that nice. that is on the horizon soon where we'll be able to have blood pressure cuffs for our patients. And if we can just give them a blood pressure cuff, then we can actually do much of prenatal care from home. I think the only piece that's missing is the fetal heart tones, but um once you can feel the baby moving, the, the patient can say, yes, I feel fetal movement and that's going to be fine. So I think if you have blood pressure cuffs, easily 50% of prenatal care can probably move to a home space. Where, where are we with technology as it relates to, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's a dirty word, but remote uh, fetal heart monitoring. Um, I mean, I feel like we should be at a place where you can strap something on somebody and it should pan, be able to pan scan the abdomen and find the appropriate heartbeat and cancel out mom. Like we're at a state of wearable technology where I feel like, what's, do you have any updates on kind of where we are with that? I don't. I actually, I mean, because yes, theoretically, it, what you're saying makes perfect sense. I haven't seen that technology um, in use clinically at all. And, you know, in terms of taking it up a step, remote ultrasound, we are definitely doing telehealth. Um, we have um, Carbondale is the one that comes to, comes to mind where right. we have a sonographer who's there who's scanning right. patients. And then we're back at, at Barnes seeing the patient. So I feel like, but even that, um, hmm. you know, I, I think it's, it's a room for growth. Um, but yeah, for fetal heart tones, not that I'm aware of yet. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I've always been curious if there are forces at play that, you know, you kind of, because of the experience with home uterine monitoring and what that resulted in, uh, maybe people are kind of scared about introducing something like that. And then you're getting all sorts of false, false positives that are coming into your office unnecessarily. Well, and I think the patients who would benefit from that the most are those who have, um, you know, babies that are growth restricted on the small side are, um, and then have abnormal um, Doppler flow through the umbilical cord and are sitting on our antepartum service in the hospital. And the only reason they're there is for more intensive surveillance and monitoring. Um, the, yeah. I mean, cause you can't come to the office every day, one or two times a day to get your baby monitored. I feel like those are the kinds of patients where it might be able to, to potentially keep them home more. So it'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Let me know if you hear anything. Yeah. I'm really well, curious. I've been curious now you've about piqued my curiosity. So I, need to, I feel like I need to go, go in search of the information. <laughs> well, I feel like um, the manufacturer of the home, like they had like some strap you could put on so that you could walk around the hospital and be monitored like remotely um, with your kind of classic uh, monitors for fetal uh, detection. I feel like there was such a device. But anyway, yeah, let well, me know. And, I, and, let and the know. thing is, I'm, I'm laughing as I think about this, because I remember with my second child, she never moved. Like if I had fo followed the advice that I give for decreased fetal movement, I should have just lived in triage because she just never moved. <laughs> um, and I remember one of uh, my partners saying, um, are you concerned that she has some like some rare neurological condition? And I was like, no, hadn't thought of that, but, but thanks. And, Thanks. And I, yeah, I remember right. my husband, like the fourth time we were going to triage because I was terrified that she just had not moved in a day. Um, my husband was like, this is just getting ridiculous. We just need to get like 
one of those fetal heart things and we can just check at home and make sure she's okay. And medically in general, I am anti home daptones because I feel like it's false reassurance, right? Yeah. So if I listen yeah. in that moment and hear mm-hmm. heart tones, it's all that tells you is that baby is alive in that moment, but it, it gives you no picture of the actual level of distress of that, that baby. And so I feel like my party line pre COVID was don't buy those things because it's really just false reassurance. And now in the age of COVID, I'm like, well, <laughs> you just want to mm-hmm. just want to like know the baby <laughs> is there, you know, before right. 18 weeks, like it might have utility in that way. And that's where the pandemic might be able to shift the way we think about that, because now the patients will be more inclined to use it more responsibly because the reason for using such a tool now is different. It's less of like reassurance and more practical, like actually this is how we do prenatal care Mm -hmm. now. So um, I'll be, yeah, totally curious to see how this plays out. Here's a little bit because I want to hear more about your story. I so um, I read a little bit about you from the DCR, but I'm curious about how you became interested in public health and you worked at the CDC. And I'm interested in hearing more about that path and your path to medicine. And um, sure. Oh my gosh. That. I'm like I feel like this is such a long, twisted story. But <laughs> as a wait, did you live in Atlanta? <laughs> um, so. For a couple of times throughout life. Yes, I did. Um, nice. Love that. But as a kid, I, I always said that I wanted to be a doctor, but I had this um, little issue, which was that I was not that great at science naturally. And then um, went to Stanford, which I was so happy and excited um, to get accepted. But I was instantly intimidated because, you know, my roommate had gone to Phillips Exeter and I had my nice little public high school education where I was just like, I cannot fail here. Um, and so wait, Ebony, before you start, like how, what told you that you were not so that good at what, science? What, because, I mean, that's such a classic well, and, thing and to I, say, I think right? that, you know, if I, even though it's been debunked a little bit, I love Carol Dweck's work talking about the fixed mindset versus the gross mindset. The idea that you know, your intelligence is mm-hmm. infinite. And if you work really hard, you can do anything versus, oh my gosh, my intelligence is finite. And if I'm not good at this naturally, I'm just not good at it. Um, the things that came easy to me in high school were speaking and writing. And that's where I felt like I was mm-hmm. a star. And the science and the math, it was just more of a struggle. And so when I got to Stanford, yeah. I, I wanted to gravitate towards the things that I knew that I was going to be good at. And the idea of taking the pre-med requirements was so intimidating. And so I, um, my mom was the executive director of the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. And so I learned lessons in public health and health disparities. I mean, from the time that I can remember, I was kind of, you know, at my mom's footsteps following her around the state of Ohio as she gave speeches. Um, So public health, health policy, I was like, I can definitely do that. And enjoyed it. And the summer after my freshman year, I did a internship um, for the United Nations Human Rights Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. And it sounds amazing, but actually I was a glorified secretary. So I can type like 85 words a minute and all of these (laughs) older gentlemen from all over the world realized it. So the NGO that I was working for basically, um, I shouldn't say this, but kind of pimped me out. (laughs) And my secretarial (laughs) skills were broadly used. And so even though I spent a summer in Geneva, I didn't see the light of day. I was working 24 seven and I was the youngest person there. And there were six other women from Stanford working for the same NGO. They were all, all rising seniors. And so our last weekend in Geneva, we revolted Mm -hmm. and decided to take um, train, a train trip. And we all went to different, we went off in pairs and went to different places in Europe. So I went with a a senior to Paris and we spent the weekend there together. And on that train ride, she was telling me, talking about her major, which was human biology. And she explained it as the, um, during your sophomore year, you take a two hour course the entire year. And the first hour is practical or or is real science. So let's say that you learn about the central dogma of biology um, in the first hour. And the second hour is practical. And you have say a startup person from Silicon Valley come in and talk about how they use that practically in their work. 
And as she described the major, it sounded fascinating. Like I really wanted to learn more about it. And so we, we talked a little bit more about kind of why I wasn't pre-med. And I realized in that conversation that fear is a horrible reason not to pursue your dreams. And so luckily Stanford had a shopping period and I decided I was going to shop that course and just see how it went. And so fast forward to the beginning of the school year, I went to the first day of the human biology core lecture series. And it was this guy named Bill Durham. And the first hour was about um, lactose metabolism. And the second hour was about how the United States spends millions of dollars on a milk program to send milk to the developing world to make sure people had nutritional value. But most of the world is lactose intolerant. And so that money actually goes to like whitewash walls. And uh, like, that's what like the powdered milk actually is going for. And how, um, you know, you need to align health policy with like the reality of what's happening on the ground. And I was sold. I, I mean, I will never forget that lecture. It was amazing. And so I stuck with it. And by the time I had finished that course, I was like, okay, let's do the next one. And before I knew it, I had enough credits to be a human biology major. And it basically finished the uh, pre-med requirements at that point. Um, so that's kind of how I stumbled back into being pre-med. Um, but I didn't finish those requirements till the last quarter before I graduated from Stanford. And so I went ahead and followed my first path, which was to get the master's in public health. So I went to the University of Michigan and got my MPH in health policy, you know, continuing to pursue that, that health policy route that I had seen my mom use so effectively in her career. And that's how I got to CDC. So the summer between my two years of the MPH, you have to do an internship. And so I did it at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I mean, I watched the movie Outbreak in awe. Like, I wanted it to be an epidemic intelligence service officer. I was like, that is me. Um, wow. But <laughs> I have to be honest, my, my summer at the CDC was not at all what I expected because it felt like we spent a lot of time meeting. I, I felt like I spent the entire summer in mm. meetings. And public health is extremely important. But the time horizon to see change often is 20 years. And as we went to meeting yeah, after meeting, yeah. I started to wonder it, if you eliminated what, I'm, what we're doing right now, would anyone's life change? And I couldn't honestly say yes in that moment. I wasn't sure. Um, and I saw that most of the people who were making decisions were actually MDs. And the MPHs seemed to be kind of like, you know, middle management. And I was like, I want to I want to make the decision and I kind of need the instant gratification of like taking care of a patient right now. It sounds really mature, right? So um, that, that summer really <laughs> solidified the fact that I, I did want to go to medical school and public health is important and it's still kind of my first love, but I, it, it, it solidified the fact that I wanted to marry that with medicine. And so um, I applied to medical school that next fall and ended up at Duke for medical school and have not looked back since. The really cool thing is that um, yeah. I, I feel like I spent all of those years in medical training, and now I finally have the opportunity to marry my loves and bring public health back into what I do, because everything that I do um, with regard to research is with an eye towards public health, and it's also an, with an eye towards making yeah. sure that those who are most vulnerable among us their, their interests are represented and that the work at the end of the day, hopefully is improving the lives of those patients who most need it. So how did, how did you, so where you're, where did the desire to go into women's health come from? Oh, so that's kind of a funny twisted story too. I'll try to make it not as long as, as uh, the, the first one. Cause that's the, I, I want, that's what I want to know. I want to like, that's yeah. what's next, right? Like we got the medical school and I'm like, okay, cool. How we so go the, to the funny thing is when I went to medical school, cause I just finished my MPH and we had been talking about um, the shortage of primary care doctors. So I wanted to be a primary care doctor. And the one thing that I said I did not want to do was OBGYN. Cause I mean, like the lifestyle seemed horrible yes. and like that <laughs> I was going to go be like a primary care doc. And it's, funny that I am super sub-specialized sub to the nth degree now, so much for primary care. But um, on my OBGYN right. rotation, I actually did not like obstetrics at all. I was assigned to do it in Fayette, Fayetteville, North Carolina, at Cape Fear Valley, yes. or I think that's the name of the hospital. Yes. And medical students were not allowed to write in the chart. So it actually felt like my presence on the team was an, an annoyance because 
we literally could do nothing but just <laughs> observe. It was not the greatest rotation. Um, and then I drew the short straw because you could either get benign gyne, which was a nice lifestyle, or you could get gynonc, which was known to be much worse. And and I was assigned to gynonc. Terrible. And <laughs> was kind of dreading it. And then a weird thing happened, and I loved it. I was getting to the hospital at like 4.30 in the morning and not going home until like 9.30 at night, and I could have cared less. Like, I loved the patients. They were so lovely and amazing to take care of. And I learned so much for them. I loved the surgeries and opening up the abdomen and seeing these like, like little monsters of tumors and debulking all of it. I mean, I was sold. Wow. And when I looked at the attendings that were there, I could see myself in them. I was like this, I have met my people. Like this is it. And so I, uh, oh, <laughs> uh, this is how I, I felt. I, to this day, yes, I still love Guy totally Um, And so I, but I, I really hated OB. So I went to the chair of the department, Haywood Brown, and I actually said to him, I was like, I don't really know why you need to do OB to be a gynonc. So could I just do a combined medicine, um, gynecology, residency? <laughs> I mean, because I think that medicine is actually going to be a better skill set for me as an oncologist than having OB. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, no, that, that, that's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Um, so I applied to OBGYN residency, really dreading OB, but just because I wanted to be a gynecologic oncologist just that bad. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> and it's hilarious. So now, hold on. No, wait, just a second. Can I just intersect that I, I just want to intersect that I came to residency absolutely not wanting to do gynonc and wanting nothing more than to be a reproductive endocrinologist. Funny so. how these things work out. Oh, it's just... We're just... <laughs> so I got to residency uh, at the Brigham and I still really enjoyed gynonc, um, but I did not see, and I want to be careful here because I greatly respect everyone who trained me, but I didn't see any women who were gynongs who were, um, who had the life that I wanted to have. So, um, there was a person who was married, but she like yeah. didn't have kids and was like at the hospital, like every waking hour. Like, I feel like I could be there at 2am and I would see her. Um, and then there was another, uh, attending who had kids and everything. And I met with her cause I was like, how do you balance it all? And she said to me, you just do it. And then a couple of weeks later, she was like working for industry and had left because she like was burned out. Like I just, I didn't, I didn't see like the model of oh. the life that I wanted to have. Um, and around that time, yeah. Yeah. I met my now husband, then boyfriend, and, you know, just kind of decided quality of life is actually really important to me. Like, if I'm honest about it, I want to be a wife and I want to be a mother and I want to be a great doctor. But if I get to be 50 years old and I have this great career and not the personal life that I wanted for myself. I'm not going to be happy, which I think is a hard realization to come to because in medical school, I'm like, I'm, I'm happy to work hard. Like who cares? And I am, but I, mm -hmm. I wanted balance yeah. in my life. So yeah. anyway, I ended up deciding to be a generalist, which I did for um, three years. And I really enjoyed my job a great deal. I was an academic generalist at the Brigham. Um, but I, realized that the part of gynecology that I love is surgery. And if you're a generalist in Boston, pretty quickly, you, it, it almost starts to feel unethical mm -hmm. to keep all your surgical cases. Because am I going to keep my laparoscopic kissed and it's going to take me a few hours to do? Or am I going to send it to MIGS where they're in and out in an hour? So I really right. quickly mm -hmm. lost mm -hmm. the surgery, which I loved, and quickly gained a whole bunch of annual exams, which unless I had delivered their baby and they were showing me the pictures afterwards and it was like a reunion, like I really want to do them. Like yeah. I, I like procedures. And the other interesting thing that happened when I was a generalist yeah. is true to form. I had not liked obstetrics as a, as a resident. Like it was clear to everyone that I did not like obstetrics. Like I was like, take me to the OR please. Um, but as a wow. generalist, I started to love obstetrics like the relationship that I developed with the patients and then getting to deliver her first baby, seeing her at her next annual and then delivering her next baby. Like mm -hmm. the relationship and the continuity turned out to be very important for me as a resident. You just kind of run in and out and you don't really know the patients. Um, so I love that part of it. And then I also started to do more research and the research in health equity and reproductive outcomes was also fascinating. And so I, um, 
one night was um, signing out to my senior partner who was 65 and we took um, a 24 hour call once a week. And that was my life. Um, and I was signing out to him one, one, one <laughs> night and I was like looking at him thinking, I don't want to still be doing this when I'm 65 years old. And I didn't see an end in sight. Like I loved my job for being young, newly married, but I realized like that wasn't the life that I was, I wouldn't still be happy having that life 30 years later. And I didn't see a pathway to not keep doing that for forever. And so my husband, who is an engineer, we, we always did a fall foliage trip. And one year he said to me, are you sure you don't want to do fellowship? Like you loved Gynonk. Are you, are you sure that you don't want to do that? And I said, I, I don't think I want to go back and, and do that. And he said, well, what are the other options? Because, you know, he knows nothing about OBGYN. So I, I walked him through the other subspecialties. <laughs> and when I got to MFM, he was like, that one, that one, you should do MFM. And I was like, but I didn't even like oh, OB wow. as a resident. And he was like, but you really like it now. And so we talked about it. And it's really weird. My <laughs> husband, who's an engineer who knows nothing about OBGYN, is actually the person who suggested to me that I should think about MFM. And as I thought about it, it gave me many of the things that I liked. So um, some continuity relationships, still getting to like do procedures. Um, at that point, I, I realized that I liked obstetrics, just not the way that I had practiced it as a resident. And um, a skill set to really be a true researcher, because I had 20% research time as a generalist, but that really just meant a 20% pay cut. And I used Monday as my research day. Um, but if I wanted to be a serious researcher and actually mm -hmm. dedicate more than half of my time to it, I was going to need some better research chops to do that. And so that was what um, I decided with, with uh, I think, 30 days before the application deadline to go ahead and apply to Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellowship. And uh, that's actually what brought me to WashU. <laughs> so that is my long circu circuitous route to how I am now an MFM and not a gynecologic oncologist. <laughs> Yeah, and there's just so many like pearls in there. So many of us can relate to those. Yeah. So like that's like some people, you, their stories they kind of meander a little bit, and you're like, I don't know, I'm not really relate. This maybe not relating to this and other stuff. But this is like everybody who's an OBGYN can relate to this one. Ebony. Well, thank that's you. Well, and the, the other now. thing is, I try to be honest when um, people come when trainees come and talk to me about career path because. Um, what I put a lot of in there, which I think is not yeah. um, often socially acceptable in medicine, is is the personal perspective. Because if I if I was just totally blunt and honest about what I really love most, um, it probably is still going on. Like I, I still stand by like what I felt <laughs> those early days when I was a medical student. Um, that being said, I am 110% happy with the career decisions that I have made, um, in part because I also realized that what I value more than almost anything else in terms of career happiness is autonomy over my time. Um, I like my research days where if my kid is sick at mm -hmm. school, I can go get her and I don't have to worry about like leaving the operating room. Um, so I, I feel like and I love the research that I do right now. And MFM is fascinating because I, oh, I actually left out the part that I, I applied to internal medicine and OBGYN because I couldn't make up my mind about which one I wanted to do. Um, mm. <laughs> see, I left that part out. Because um, I actually really liked internal medicine. And um, I feel like MFM, what'd you say? Did Dr. Brown know that? Uh, Did Dr. So, Brown know that? You know, I think I might have kept that one under wraps. I basically wrote, wrote I wrote an essay that was the same essay, but and it said I wanted to either be a medical oncologist or a gynecologic oncologist. So it just changed that paragraph between medonc or gynonc and it submitted it. But I, I actually decided yeah. OB because I would get a medicine um, interview and uh, accept it. And then as I got closer, I'd be like, oh, I don't really want to go to that one. And I would cancel it. And then as I got closer to the OBGYN interview, I'd be excited about it. So I systematically kind of canceled all of the medicine interviews and only went on the OB interviews. And that's kind of how I ended up applying to OBGYN. Yeah. Nice. Nice. <laughs> that's a cool story, man. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about coming to St. Louis, your interest in sort of history and senior? I'd love, would love to hear a little bit more about your mom's career, too, and how that's influenced 
you and health disparities. And I'd love to hear your take on where we need to go in St. Louis addressing sure. and how so, we can do that as a um, I, My mom is still, I think, my greatest hero. So there was a... Um, a, a, like a it was like a poster that had a the picture of a, a lot of African-American maternal fetal medicine doctors. And it said that we're celebrating April as National Minority Health Month. And the very first Minority Health Month was in 1989 for the state of Ohio. It was Ohio Minority Health Month. And it was started by my mother. So when I saw that poster, <clears throat> I was just like, wow, like wow. this is like the offspring of my mom's work from like the mid to late 80s. And so I... <clears throat> When did so you see this was, poster? It was when did you on see Facebook, this? Yes, I'm and sorry. It was a poster from SMFM that was kind of advertising National Minority Health Month. And it had had probably like pictures of 50 African-American MFMs. Yeah, this was like just last month. So this is recent. Yeah. Um, but oh, cool. but I, I have written so many of my essays open with my mom's words. So I remember her saying, um, in the shadow of some of our finest yes. medical facilities where kings and shahs come from around the world to seek medical care, black babies and mothers continue to die. <clears throat> and the first time I heard her give that was probably around 1984, 85. And she was talking about the Cleveland Clinic. And mm. um, it's crazy because I never imagined when I heard her deliver those words early on that I would now be a physician delivering babies in those same fine medical facilities of which she spoke and that black babies and mothers would continue to be dying. And here we are 30 plus years later. <clears throat> so, um, you know, fast forward a few years, my junior year of college, um, my mom was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and um, I was in California and she was in Ohio. And the first doctor that she went to essentially told her that there was not much that could be done, that when her bones started breaking, that she could come in for like some palliative treatment, but there wasn't much to do. And so she, she felt like she'd been given a death sentence. Luckily, being in healthcare, she sought a second opinion and found out that what the first oncologist had said was true, like a decade before, and ended up getting an autologous stem cell transplant at the mm -hmm. Cleveland Clinic um, shortly thereafter. And so I remember, you know, I was so far away from her and going home as often as I could to visit her and being with her at the Cleveland Clinic. And one of the nurses remarking that she was the first patient that she had seen on the transplant ward for myeloma that was African-American in a long time, which is weird because myeloma is more common in African-Americans. <clears throat> and it just made me think, what's going on here? And is this, is this an accident with the fact that my mom was actually mm -hmm. not, um, she was not recommended to get the, the standard of care at the time? And so that right. gave rise to my senior honors thesis at Stanford, which was called Access to Autologous Stem Cell Transplants for Patients with Multiple Myeloma in California, the Role of Race. And I used the California Hospital Discharge Database. And after controlling for all of the mm. potential confounding factors, African-Americans with myeloma in California were 44% less likely to get an autologous stem cell transplant, the only treatment with a demonstrated survival advantage at the time. And so that thesis won the um, Firestone Medal for Excellence in Undergraduate Research at Stanford. And that was my first kind of foray myself into um, research. That's also, and I'm, I'm saying this for any trainees who might be listening, that's also, <clears throat> I don't have many regrets in my career. That's actually also one of my regrets, because I remember my thesis advisor saying, um, you should definitely publish this. This is this has got to be submitted for publication. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to publish it. And it was right around graduation. I had no idea how to publish a paper, like not even a clue. Mm -hmm. And instead of me saying to them, <laughs> I don't know what to do. What should I do? I just kept saying, yeah, I'm going to do it. And and a year folded into two and then three, right? I, I never published that paper. So I, I got my glory as like oh, the little medal wow. that I got at graduation yeah. from Stanford, but who cares? Because if you didn't publish it, you didn't do it. Um, so so to, to this day, that's like one of my few um, career regrets is like never publishing that paper. Um, but yeah, that was my, uh, my first, oh, um, my first disparities um, research project. And I think that for, you know, that was now, oh my gosh, oh, 20 years ago. Like it's actually 20 years ago this month. Um, <laughs> wow. But I think my frustration is that we, wow. 
we knew about disparities in 1984 and 85. My mom was talking about it. And then when I wrote that thesis and here we are 20 years later and we're still describing the problem, it's there. We know it exists. Like what's next? And so that's what, where I'm interested in my research going now. It's, I think defining the disparity is not difficult because it is so blatant and it's so rampant. The harder thing is figuring out what to do about it. And so I'm trying to be very, um, thoughtful and rational that any prospective project that I do, even if it doesn't have a disparities label, and I, I will be honest and say that um, I have oftentimes done disparities work and not called it disparities work because as a young researcher of color, you have the potential to be pigeonholed in that direction and not have other opportunities because that's all people think that you can do. So I have, wow, I'm being super honest in this podcast. My goodness, yeah. you guys got me in like a comfortable day. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea's got some like truth um, serum going. Really um, um, but I, everything that I do has that focus. And so I'm really interested in interventions that are going to improve outcomes for all women, but preferentially for women who are at the highest risk of having a bad outcome. And that tends to be low income women of color. Yeah. Thoughts on the disparities that we're seeing with COVID. Sure. So I, I think my take on it is, <clears throat> I, I feel like we keep acting like we've rediscovered an old problem that has been staring us in the face. So when the data is showing, I, mean, I, I think in the first 10 deaths in the city of St. Louis, um, they were all African-American. And yeah. I wasn't surprised by that because, I mean, anyone who follows outcomes literature, like that, that, that was not a surprise. Um, I think on one hand, I'm glad that Mm -hmm. um, issues of maternal morbidity and mortality are getting the press that they deserve because they are unacceptably high issues in our communities. Um, On the other hand, I think the double-edged sword of that is I think that it's changed the way that we have handled the pandemic. Because if we wanna be painfully honest, the push to begin to reopen the economy started with the realization that those who were dying were those who we felt could somehow be, um, I don't know what the right word for it is, but it it was um, people who are old and people who are poor and people of color who um, are more likely to have medical comorbidities because of many societal forces that are beyond their control. it's, it makes me incredibly sad because what is happening in our society right now, yeah. I think reflects so many things that are wrong with it. Um, so yeah, it, it will be, I think for pregnancy, <clears throat> we're still limited to case series. We actually have a COVID maternal infant collaborative um, to, to study COVID and pregnancy. And it's a wonderful interdisciplinary team of obstetricians, pediatricians, infectious disease doctors, psychiatrists. Um, we've all come together to kind of pool our resources to figure out what exactly is happening with pregnancy and COVID. And all indications are that pregnancy outcomes are worse, but at least it doesn't seem like mortality rates are worse in pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. But so we, we can begin to answer some of the questions of what's going with wrong with COVID and pregnancy, and then what can we do to um, try to mitigate um, some of those risk factors in pregnancy. <laughs> um, but- Tell us how you are seen well. I know that you play the piano and I know that you're also a really active. Yeah. Player. So my, my husband Church, and you're I, a choir um, director, is that right? For um, oh not gosh. doing it right now, but um, directed the, the youth choir at, at our church. Yeah. Yeah. So he sings, I play, um, I cannot sing. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I play what the do you piano. Play? That's the instrument I still play, but um it's, it's funny, the different phases of life. So um, growing up, I played the piano, the violin, and the clarinet. And so I did band and orchestra. Like anything musical was me. Um, and it's funny because I posted a video of my husband singing something and me playing something a few weeks ago. And almost nobody in my life right now knew that I played the piano. And everybody who knew me from like 
college <laughs> and before that was my identity was like the girl who plays the piano um oh but but back to your question what yeah. am I doing to stay well um I think yeah I will be honest and say the first few weeks of this were a struggle and it was um, a struggle of being scared, not knowing if going to work meant that I was going to bring something home that was going to harm my family. Um, it was the stress of knowing that there were people who I cared a great deal for who were going to be laid off and furloughed. Um, and it was the concern that yeah. um, the social contract had been broken. The contract that says that as medical professionals, we take some risk on to care for others, but society is supposed to also protect us. And feeling like that had fundamentally been yeah. violated with yeah. the lack of PPE and all of those things. Um, I think that I have gotten through those things in part because mm-hmm. um, you just get used to it. So going to work was really stressful those first few weeks. And now I have my little decontamination routine. And my four-year-old is fascinated by the fact that when I walk through the door, she can't touch me. And she'll be like, do you have COVID on you? <laughs> like, let me, let me go take my shower now. So we have our, I think that there's comfort in routine and we have the new routine. Um, also exploring mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. and doing different things as a family. So we made homemade pizza the other night, the, the whole, the, did the whole process together. And then we went to Italy. So we uh, watched a TV show where we went through Venice and we went through Rome and looked at the Vatican. And so we, we've been doing these like little virtual vacations. Um, oh, I love that. And going through Forest Park, I, I feel like my family, my husband and our beautiful three little girls have kept me grounded through all of this. Um, and I want to be careful to say that there are people who are going through this who are alone. And I can only imagine what it's been like to be quarantined by yourself for all of these times, through, for, through, through these times. But yeah, I'd say my family, I, I thank God that I actually, in addition to loving them, I like them a great deal. And I think that that's what's made all of this tolerable. (laughs) That's beautiful. Um, I think you've given us all a lot to think about and just... Reflect on it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. And I'm like, to you, you all, and to everyone listening, (laughs) stay safe. I'm like, I trust that we will make it through this and make it through it stronger than when we started.